Amen. Well, we'll just give a moment for some of those who are coming back to come. Um, we're going to go on with our study in uh, Romans. I want to go on with um, what we've been discussing. And um, if some of you have felt that possibly it's a bit difficult to follow, uh, do remember that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God, it says in Corinthians 10. To the pulling down of the strongholds of Satan... And where are the strongholds of Satan? In the mind. Now, always a man is captured in his mind. Everything, basically, about a man is in his intellect. That's where the enemy, the devil, operates. In the mind. Um, I want you to understand that there is no other area where the devil has such a hold on a person as in their mind. The strongholds of Satan are in the mind, the scripture says. And therefore, it's important when one comes to the scriptures that one is prepared to allow your preconceptions and your ideas and your philosophies to be torn down. The pulling down of the strongholds of Satan are always needing to be pulled down in the mind. And it's in our minds that we come to ideas and theories and philosophies that destroy us eventually. Most people are destroyed by what's been built up in their minds. We don't hear what people say, we hear what we think they say because our minds are preconditioned to read things in a certain way. For instance, I'll give you a, a simple instance. I used to move with a, a group of people who believed in holiness. And one of their favorite little scriptures was, as he is, so are we in this world. And therefore, you had to, in their terms, live the life of Christ in all his fullness now on this earth. But the way they were reading the scripture isn't as he is, so are we, but as he is, so am I. Now there's a great difference between one individual being the embodiment of Christ and we being the embodiment of Christ. Isn't there? Great difference between the two. Well, is there or isn't there? Of course there is. Um, in other words, I might manifest some of the virtues of Christ. You might manifest some of the virtues of Christ. And as he is, so are we in this world. But I would be very foolish if I thought I could manifest all the virtues of Christ or you thought you could. For Christ is God who filleth all in all. And how can a puny human being embody everything of God? What I can manifest is that part of God's nature which he has invested in me 
I've been a partaker. But I haven't taken the whole, I've only been a partaker. We're members in particular, but we're members of a whole. And we need to realize and get our minds open to hear the truth of God's word. Now you can talk to those people, and I've talked to them for many hours. You can never shift them, because the stronghold of Satan is in the mind. In other words, they've got preconceived ideas, and when you speak to them, they don't hear what you're saying. They hear it always according to their gospel. And therefore, they just refute everything. For instance, they would say uh, that the Old Testament's not necessary now for we're in the New Covenant. What a blasphemous thing for any man to say. They will turn around and tell you that, well, of course, the old prophets of old, they didn't know much and... Um, you know, we, we're Christians, we're greater. Blasphemy. Uh, if you think that you have a greater encounter with God than King David did, I want to ask you where the Goliaths are that you've slain. When you took a bear or a lion, metaphorically speaking, by your bare hand, slew it. Where you did exploits for God. Hmm? where you were so cunning in playing of a musical instrument you could drive demons away from a king where you could gather a band of people together and make them mighty men of valor who were thieves and vagabonds and rogues when you've done all that then come and tell me your experience is greater than King David's otherwise keep your mouth shut on that score at least Fair comment, isn't it? Hmm? I mean, if you want to compare yourself with someone, then make sure you don't choose someone too big. Mind you, you're probably big enough in your own boots to fill anyone's, in your own estimation. We want to go on with Romans, and if you feel that I'm getting at you, and you feel got at as I preach, may I assure you I am. And if you feel absolutely got at, then I must say that preaching's worthwhile. If you feel it doesn't apply to you, then I'm awfully sorry. Don't bother to come back next week because you can't hear God's word. You see, the word of God, to be of any effect, should get at people. People come to me and say, Oh dear, I came to that meeting and you got at me all the time. Well, what do you think the preaching's for? Making you feel comfortable. It's making you feel uncomfortable. The word of God, sharper than a two-edged sword, and should divide between soul and spirit. And if a man doesn't feel personally got at, and personally spoken to, then it's not the word of God that's being preached. I know when someone's beginning to get convicted by God because they feel that people are trying to get at them all the time. You bet they are. But it really, it's God's spirit. People have come. I've never seen them before. They've walked into meetings and they've said, everything you said, you were getting at me. 
I didn't even know their names, so how I could have known all about them to get at them all the time, I don't know. But God wants to get at our hearts. And God wants to move in our beings and get at our inward being and change it. And you've got to be prepared to open your heart to God. And if you feel God at, you better repent and turn in your inward being. Or become like the Pharisee, smile sweetly and say, oh, that was wonderful. A whited sepulchre full of dead men's bones. So we want to go on. You know we're in God's army. And in an army there's war, and in a war there's casualties. And that's the way it's going to be. But don't worry, there's always a first aid post. That's also handy, you know? And the first aid post picks you up and sticks you straight back in the front line. There is no retreat. Uh, we're here to fight a warfare. And there is no retreat and there's no way out the battle. When the battle's over, we'll wear a crown. That's when you're in glory. Until then, there is no place of retreat and there's no place of hiding and there's no place of peace. And we have an enemy, the devil, who goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we go about seeking to save those whom the lion is about to devour. That's our calling. And I want to go on then, as we've started in Romans chapter 3, you remember. We dealt with the glorious truth. And um, if you weren't here at the last few meetings... That's your misfortune. It goes on in Romans 3 verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And don't forget, we dealt with, most people believe they've sinned, but they don't understand what it means to come short of the glory of God. And we dealt with that. And then we go on, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. I want to go on to the next part um, in talking about the characteristics of this salvation we have. And you remember that we talked last time about God's righteousness. And how the Jew first 
could come into the righteousness of God and then the Gentile and how the Jew looked forward to the sacrifice of Christ and the Gentile looks backward and the Gentile and Jew of today looks backward to that sacrifice and we went through Hebrews and understood it. Did we not? Some did. Did you understand it or not? Yes, you did. It was made very simple. Everything's made simple. Really. Now first, I want you to make a note if you have a pen or a pencil. Always salvation must be preached balancing justice and love. The worst thing of all is the modern preaching of today that preaches a Christ of love but leaves totally out justice. God is righteous and just. Says in Romans, behold the goodness and the severity of God. Most people love to behold the goodness very few love to behold his severity. And we must always preach a gospel to be a true gospel, not only a gospel of love, but also a gospel of justice. God is just, and the justifier of him that believeth, but he's first and foremost just. And we need to understand that when we come to God, we need to understand that he will always deal with us in justice. Don't ever come to God believing that it's just love. It has to be justice as well. Justice divine, wrote John Charles Wesley, is satisfied. And justice divine always has to be satisfied. And there is a lot of preaching today that is preaching a false gospel. Now you'll notice that Paul, when we come to this uh, verse, verse 27, we're going to deal with verse 27 uh, to 31 today. Uh, and the amazing thing is we've been through and seen that Jesus Christ before was the ransom, the propitiation, uh, the mercy seat, but most of all the appeaser of God's wrath. In other words, Jesus Christ, we deserve the wrath of God and Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross didn't only bear our sin but the main thing he did, he took the righteous judgment of God into his own body on the tree and that is the vital thing to understand. Justice divine was satisfied on Calvary's tree. You understand that? All right, now let's go on then and you'll notice there are three more points that Paul now brings out. And it's interesting that Paul, when he um, ends this, um, whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness um, for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. You wonder why he didn't stop there. I mean, he just expounded the glorious gospel. And instead of stopping on the high, the climax of the whole truth of the gospel, he now puts down some negatives. He says, 
First of all, where is boasting? It is excluded. It's a total negative. The first point he brings out is what about boasting? Has that a place in salvation? And the answer is no. Secondly, he asks another question. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? In other words, what he's doing is he's taken salvation as a whole and preached it, and now he's bringing in the negatives to open people's minds to understand that in every preaching of the gospel, it's necessary not only to preach the positives, but to preach the negatives too. You see, I need to know the negative side as well as the positive. It's a deadly doctrine of the devil. The charismatics practice it non-stop. And so do evangelicals. To try and limit yourself just to positive statements and ignore the negatives. That is not the gospel. What you're preaching is a God of love without justice. Justice demands a balance. Doesn't it? If you're going to be just, you must weigh everything. The positives and the negatives. If you only take a positive stance and never even appreciate the negatives, you won't come to a just decision, will you? You can't. And that's one of the dangers of um, the modern day preaching, which is to keep everything positive. Keep everything positive. Don't ever preach negatives. Keep everything positive. You know, you've got to believe. Just take the positive scriptures. And people do it. But it's deadly. It's deadly to your soul. You begin to live in deception. You need to know the negatives. Uh, it goes on then, and he says um, in verse um, 31, Do we then make the, the void, the law, through faith? In other words, having preached the glorious truth, he puts out three questions that are absolute stumbling blocks in most people's minds. Whenever the gospel's preached, you'll find these three things are the things they fall over. And that's the awful thing. There are always things that people fall over. And these three points, he's put right near the glorious climax of the whole gospel, Paul brings them out. Now you'll remember that he, he quoted them in chapter 1 and 2 and he's repeating three points that he's already made in the epistle and I want to go through and see why he majored on these three after coming to the glorious climax of the gospel and explaining it why did he go back and put negative straight after it and ask questions it's a good point isn't it should always end on the positive shouldn't you Hmm? that's what people will tell you when I go to America one of the Bible colleges where I went to they said the trouble with uh, myself or with Ed Miller or one or two of the other ministers is we're so negative what they meant is they're people who preach only positive gospel they never ever tell people the negative side because you know we want to move in love and a still faith and Get them to believe and oh, all that junk. Now, I believe in warfare. 
I believe in taking my jacket off, rolling up the sleeves and getting into battle. And when you get into battle, you know, you get blood up to the armpits, but you fight on. I mean, it's a mess. Amen. And when you come to people's minds and hearts, you've got to begin to tear out the roots of the lies that have been sown there over years. And that's what preaching's for. It's to do violence with a person's intellect. Humanism and the lies of Satan and their education has taught them for years to be atheistic and godless. Religion and evangelicalism has taught them a totally false religion which makes them whited sepulchres on the outside and dirty, filthy sin on the inside and they pretend Christianity demands a cleansing within, a change of mind, a change of heart. It demands a total desecration of the self-life, a total destruction of the power of sin, an annihilation of the lives and strongholds of Satan in the mind. And Christianity is a violent religion, violent against the devil, and then the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, enters the heart. After violence. So, well, I thought I would come to Jesus and it would all be sweet. My darling, you're wrong. It won't be like that. There's going to be an awful battle. Well, I thought it would all be easy. It is. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. But I've got to get rid of my burden yoke before I can wear his. And that's where the problem starts. Strange, isn't it? Why do you think he went back to these three negatives? Anyone got any ideas? Make sure you didn't get carried away. Well, I suppose from battle that's likely to happen if you get slain. Um, you'll get carried away, all right. Feet first. Uh, well, no, actually, it wasn't quite like that. I'll go on. Firstly, the first reason, or A, was, was the greatness of the subject. Um, he realized that if you take that out of context of truth in life, what happens is you get out of balance. And so he always kept people's feet on the ground. Now that's a good thing. I always like my feet to be kept firmly on the ground, don't you? I have to live down here and I need to deal with the nitty-gritty things of life. Don't you? And we need to learn that. It's funny, but, you know, uh, there are some people who are what you'd call goody-two-shoes. You know, they're so perfect they don't really need to live down here any longer. I don't know why God just doesn't take them home. As for me, I'm afraid I'm not quite like that. My shoes don't get goody. They usually get stepping the wrong thing, uh, kind of thing you find in a farmyard. And you realize that you need a bit of cleaning up and sorting out. Um, if that offends your sensibilities, I'm just being honest. 
But the thing is, we all make mistakes, don't we? Hmm? And we all have to find our way, and life is a life of experiences and difficulties and problems, and the way you face up to them and the way you cope with them determines your walk with God. And not all of us win every battle. We lose some and we win some. Thank God we win more than we lose. But in the time of the hand-to-hand combat, you're not sure who's going to win. And sometimes you feel almost overcome. But thank God there is victory. And the first thing Paul wanted to do was um, convey to people the greatness of the subject. And he was worried that if he just conveyed that truth and took it out of context of living, then that people would become what I would call religious. In other words, they believe they're saved, they know they're saved, and all that junk that some evangelicals talk, and in actual fact, it doesn't touch their daily living at all, when they're honest. It's never changed what they think inwardly. It might have changed the outward living. They'll go to church, they'll not swear, they'll not smoke, they'll not drink, um, and they'll try to become Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, but they will never, ever get the inside how they think in their minds. Because as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he, Jesus is always concerned with the inward, isn't he? He's a Jew who's one inwardly, we found in Romans chapter 2. Okay, the second thing was, um, or B, that he came uh, down is because of our sinful state. Now, man is a sinner. You remember we read, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, because a man has sinned and come short of the glory of God, what he did when he sinned, he wanted knowledge of good and evil, didn't he? And what we need to understand is that because we are sinners, we need to understand the negatives in order that we can appreciate the positives. We need to know the errors so we can keep in the right. You will find the Bible, the Word of God, right throughout, deals with the negatives and positives. If you take King David, does it say only the good things about him? It tells you the negatives. If you take Elisha and Elijah, does it say only the good? No, it tells us the negatives. If you take Paul, does it tell us only the good? No, it tells us the negatives. If you take anyone in Scripture, Peter, did it tell us just the good? No, it told us the negatives. And you realize that right throughout Scripture, the Scripture's full of positives and negatives. It tells you of the men's failings, doesn't it? Hmm? Now, if we weren't sinners, God would only need to feed us the positives. But because we are sinners and we need salvation, God feeds us with both the positives and negatives. And the third thing Uh, that Paul brought this out for was dealing with the mental difficulties of the Jews and Gentiles. In other words, they'd got preconceived ideas and Paul had to really deal with those preconceived ideas. And what we're sharing today, I want to deal with some of your preconceived ideas. All right? We're going to do violence in your intellect, my friend. 
or maybe you won't be my friend when we get to doing violence with it. Well, that's all right. I wouldn't want a friend with an enemy in his camp. Uh, people don't like the way I preach. Well, that's all right. I don't care. Now, the fourth thing is the necessity of warning against error. I must be warning people always against error. And I suppose the most important thing, if you take an evangelical attitude, is um, is the statement in um, verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Now, how many of you have been told when you come to Christ and you live in grace, the law ceases to have any dominion over you? How many have been taught that? Be honest. Come on, hands up. How many have been taught it? That once you're under grace, you're no longer under law. Stick your hands right up. Come on, be honest. Sure more of you have. Well, people who have been here long enough should know. But the, the lie is that Christians turn around and say that once you're under grace, you're no longer under law. Now here the scripture and Paul's statement totally refutes that. Doesn't it? It says, Do we then make void the law of God through faith? Has the old covenant been totally done away with because we're in faith? God forbid! In other words, let it never be so. He says we establish the law. Now, how many people do you hear preach that from the pulpits? Not many. People come to me and they say, Oh, well, that's old covenant. That doesn't apply to a Christian. You better believe it does. Jesus said, Whosoever doesn't teach the law or teaches the law and tells man that he can break one part of it is in judgment of hellfire. And you say, well, you know, I thought it was done away with. Well, it wasn't. And the scripture clearly shows it. So the fourth thing Paul brings these negatives out for is to warn people against errors. And we're going to go into them. Now, it's an evangelical error, isn't it? How, I mean, they tell you, you know, oh, come to, come to Jesus. It, we're under grace now. We're not under law, we're under grace. And they call people forward under that pretext and they never bring them to law. Isn't that true? Well, isn't it? You say, well, I can think of scriptures. Not under law, under grace. Yeah, but you've got to take them in the context of the whole, not a verse out of context. What was he talking about and what did he mean there? And when we come to it, we're going to come to that scripture in uh, uh, Romans 7 and Romans 8. We're going to deal with it. But at the moment, we're in Romans 3, and I'm just dealing with what's here. Uh, 
the thing is, what we have to understand is the law is established in Christ. It's not made void. Grace and the blood of Jesus doesn't nullify the law. It establishes it. Now, do you all understand that? Well, do you? You might not like it, but that's the truth. That's what the Bible says. It establishes the law. That is why um, love without justice is a misrepresentation of Jesus Christ. Total misrepresentation. And that's what people do. They love to preach the God of love and they leave out the God of righteousness. They hate it when you come along and say, look, there's a scripture which says, behold the goodness and severity of God. They love the goodness, they hate the severity. So we're going on. And let's start with the number one thing, I suppose. Always should start at one. It's the beginning. Pardon? We'll come into that. Um, but you're not right. That's why it's sensible for a wife to ask privately at home. She won't get shown up. You're not right. It's not just the moral law. It's talking about the law, the Mosaic law. The whole of the Mosaic law. I'm coming to explain it. But you'll have to come back on Tuesday to hear that bit. Because... Uh, I can't do everything in one go, you see. I'm just telling you. And that first be Tuesday. But here we have the first bit, which is boasting. Where is boasting then? After it is that, um, that he might be just and the ju- justifier of him which believeth on Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Now you might wonder what it means. And uh, I want to uh, go into this word boasting or glorying, uh, whichever you want to use, uh, it's the same word, glorying or boasting. Uh, Paul loved this word and he uses it a lot in this, this epistle and in other places. Now, boasting is one of the awful things that happens in evangelical circles and charismatic circles and those type circles where they boast of what God has done and what they've got. Now, in the true gospel, boasting is excluded. No one has a right to boast anything. If you want to glory, him that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Boasting is a no-no in the gospel. Boasting is excluded. Glorying is excluded. Now when something is excluded, it means that it's not included. You want to be awfully careful when people come and boast of being filled with the Holy Ghost and power and they can do this and they can do that and they went here and they prayed for this and that happened and they did that and that happened and you listen to them for about 35 minutes or 40 minutes 
listen to their boasting of how God used them here and God used them there and God did this and God did that and I was wonderful and now you come up and I'll pray for you and then you'll fall over under the power and it'll all happen. That is not the gospel. That is ego riding high. And it's obnoxious in God's sight. That's boasting. Boasting is excluded from the gospel. Do you understand that? And we'll look at uh, one, in 1 Corinthians 1, of course you get the scripture I've just quoted, don't need to turn to it. He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And in Romans 2, um, verse, um, what is it, 17, I think. Uh, and you'll remember that Paul had talked about boasting. He said, Behold, thou art called a Jew, and resteth in the law, and makest thou thy boasting of God. Now the Jews were great boasters that they were God's people. And they still are boasters about being God's people. They call the Gentile a nasty name. Very nasty. Uh, somewhat similar to the Japanese calling white men big noses. I find that somewhat offensive, even though it might be true. Uh, the Japanese term for a Caucasian is a big nose. It's an insult, but that's what they call us. Uh, if you travel to Japan, you'll discover when they're murmuring and muttering, you know, talking about your big noses. The amazing thing is, in the beauty clinics, the women go to get their noses enlarged. So obviously they must think there's some beauty in the big noses, although no one's seen any beauty in mine. They usually say the opposite, but there you are. Um... What the Jews did, they made their boast in God. And they used to boast they got the law. They were God's people on the earth. They knew. And you'll remember in uh, Galatians chapter 2, uh, we won't bother to go there, um, and also in uh, Philippians 3, where Paul boasts he was circumcised the eighth day, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, blah, 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 blah. And he says... I used to glory in it. And now he says, I counted all but done that I might glory in the cross of Christ. Do you remember? In other words, he said, boasting of that type of all my spiritual credentials is excluded now. All right? I, nothing that I am or nothing I've done or nothing I profess saves me. get that into your heart nothing that you do nothing that you believe nothing that you say nothing that you claim nothing that you proclaim saves you if it did it, your salvation would be of works and not of grace if something you did saved you it would be you who was saving yourself nothing you do saves you Otherwise, you'd have something to boast of. But boasting is excluded. I hope you understand that. 
You see, uh, the Pharisee in Luke 18, you hear Christ talking to the Pharisee, and he went up to the temple and he, he stood there and he raised his hand. Lord, I thank you I'm not as other men. For instance, I go to early morning communion. I was baptized when I was a baby and confirmed when I was 14 and I'm a good church member. I tithe, I do this, I do that. That's a Pharisee. In other words, he's got something to boast of. But before God, no one has anything to boast of because if you look back in chapter 3 and verse 23, what have we all done? What have we done? Sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now everyone has, so no one has room to boast. All have done it. Now of course the Pharisee would always like to criticize the person who comes to Christ. And I know that if you look at my life closely enough, you will find things that you might consider sin. Well, that's your problem, not mine. There might be things about my personality that you don't like. Well, I dare say if I looked hard enough at you, I'd find things in your personality I didn't like. But that has nothing to do with sin. You see, sin is against God and God's law. And what we have to be careful of is we differentiate between intellectual do-goodism and Christianity and God's law. You see, there's a, there's a theory. I, I, I used to go to churches and I was amazed. Uh, holiness churches. And they all used to look like old frumps, the women. You'd go in there and they'd all wear their jumpers and tweed skirts and a bun on the back of their heads and woolly nylons uh, <laughs> or whatever they were and you'd look at them and there was nothing appealing about them I mean the one thing I knew is I didn't want to marry anyone like that I mean to think to have to look at that God forgive me and deliver me because that I couldn't bear uh, no one wants to marry a frump. And the men, they all spoke with a plum in their mouth. And they were all ever so polite and smiling. And you know, it was a smile that went teeth deep. So all the distance it would get. It never came from their heart. How nice to see you. Oh, you know, uh, so lovely of you to come. Do come again. <laughs> and... That was about the extent of it. And let's face it, that's how most uh, Catholic, Evangelical, Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, any denomination or abomination you like to name, behave. If you're straightforward and honest. You don't spend much time together, living together and helping each other and seeking God's face and crying out to him for revival. And seeing the desperation 
It's the nice, kind of easy life. Don't be offensive to anyone. Mm, God's anti that. Thank God. He hates it. And quite frankly, so do I. I've always found churchianity obnoxious in the extreme. Firstly, because it's unbiblical. There's no such thing as christening in the Bible. Infant sprinkling is blasphemy against God. In biblical terms. There's no such thing as confirmation. Blasphemous, really, because when the bishop lays hands on his head, how can he impart the Holy Ghost if he doesn't possess him? He can't. He's just got fancy robes. And usually the fellows are so old, they lean on you and give you a crick in the neck, and that's about the only thing you get from it. And to go to such pagan ceremonies and chant their cantations is an obnoxious thing in God's nostrils. He hated it with the Pharisees and Sadducees who were that way, and he hates it with the modern churches that are that way. If your living doesn't change your life and deal with your inward being, then it's mockery, it's a charade, and it's religion, and that means everyone in the church, not just a select one or two. And you won't ever revive those type places Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. No point in going into a graveyard and trying to live among them. The only people who live in graveyards are dead people. And they don't live, they're dead. You usually stick them under the ground because they begin to smell after a few days. Go into most churches and you can smell the stink of death the moment you walk in. Say, so, well, I find that quite offensive. I'm meant to be. talks about where is boasting then it is excluded by what law of works now the word law here is not law talking of mosaic law it's the word principle and in the authorized version it's been translated law but it's been what um, by what principle of works nay but by the principle of faith now, I want you to understand something. The number three, a committal of oneself to that truth. In other words, firstly, I must become aware of the truth. Secondly, I must assent to the truth. But thirdly, I must commit my whole self to that truth. Then I live in faith. Without that, it's dead. And... Um, I want to go on to look at this um, principle or law of faith. Boasting is excluded when we come to the principle of faith. And we need to understand it. But first of all, I want to deal with the errors, the negatives. Uh, if you don't mind, I'll deal with them uh, quite clearly. Number one, or A, uh, a modern error is this. It says, A, that God gave the law to mankind and he said to them, do this and you'll be saved. How many believe that's what God did? 
How many have heard that talk? He said to the Jews, if you keep this law, you'll be saved. How many believe that God said that? I mean, he didn't say it, but that's a modern error that's going around. People say, well, what, what God did is he looked at the Jews and he gave them a law and he said, do it and you'll be saved. And then when he found no one could do it, he sent his son and what he's done for the Christian gospel, he says, believe on Jesus and you'll be saved. How many believe that? How many believe it? Believe on Jesus Christ. All you have to do is believe on Jesus Christ and you're saved. Who believes it? Put your hand up. Go on. Put your hand up if you really believe it. That's wrong. Okay? Now we're going to show you why it's wrong. It's no good going, no, it is wrong. I'll show you why. So you've got to have an open mind to hear the truth. Okay? Believe on the Son to be saved, that's all, just believe, is a lie of the devil. Because if you just believed, it would be you that were doing it, and you'd have something to boast. And boasting is excluded. If it's your belief that saves you, it's you who's saving yourself. Isn't it? Hmm? People say, if you come and believe, you'll be saved. That is a lie. You won't be saved because you believe. Your belief won't save you. For it says in James, you say you believe in God. You do well. The devil also believes and trembles. Is the devil saved? Well, come on, is the devil saved? So if you accept that your belief saves you, Shouldn't the devil be saved too? So, well, I didn't know it was like that. You might not have done, but it is. And we're going to go through the scriptures. Now, I said I'm going to attack your intellect. If you don't like it, I don't care. It's one of those mornings. We sung a few war choruses... And I got on my charger and I'm ready to go. A two-edged sword in my hand and I'm going to write my, 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 march right in. <laughs> and if a few heads come off in the process, so be it. Keep your head down if you don't like it. Now, if it were just believing that saved us then it would be us that was doing the believing wouldn't it hmm? if that gospel message where people say only believe only believe all things are possible only believe only receive only receive all things are possible only receive and you get people going oh. And they go out, oh, I believe, I received. I've seen them walking out, you know. I've seen people who believe they're healed. They smash their glasses, they put them on the floor and jump on them because they've only believed. And by his stripes you're healed, so I, I'm healed. And they, they walk out, I'm healed, I can see. I can see, I can see. I know, I know I'm healed, I know I'm healed. I know I put my stick down, but I'm believing. Now, I'm believing. 
But inside their souls, they're just as crippled. Inside their hearts, they're walking about like that. You know, I know I'm normal. I know I'm normal. I believe it. And you look at them and you think, poor pathetic specimens. <laughs> I mean, when you look at it, it's stupid. Isn't it? Really, let's be honest. A lot of people are spending their time reading their Bible and trying to believe it. If I believe it, it'll happen. Mm. And then they say to them, you know, they say, well, it doesn't work. They say, get up an extra hour in the morning, read it and pray about it and believe it and it'll work. And they go, it doesn't work. And they spend their life kind of gathering themselves up, trying to believe something, and it won't work. Then they'll claim the scripture. <laughs> By his stripes, I am healed. By his stripes, I feel awful. By his stripes, I am healed. And they go on, and they, they claim it, they claim it, they claim it, and die. And you bury them, and as you put them in the ground, by his stripes he wasn't healed. There he goes. I mean, it's pathetic. I'm, I'm dealing with error now. This is error. <laughs> don't, don't you ever do it. <laughs> Otherwise I'll be attending your funeral. Uh, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. Isn't it? Well, isn't it? It's farcical. That's believism. The great bane of the church of today is believism. Why, I remember a man, he said to me, I've been baptized in the Holy Ghost, he says. And I said, well, how did that happen? He said, I received it by faith. I said, when did you do that? He said, two years ago. I said, anything happened in your life? No. I said, any signs following? Oh, no. I said, well, how do you know you received it? He said, I, I received it by faith. I believed it, therefore it's happened. I said, listen, my friend. If you received in reality, something would have happened. If nothing's happened, your belief is not belief. It's stupidity. It didn't work. If someone comes to you and says, I believe I'm totally healed and they're a cripple and they're still in their bath chair, are you going to believe them? Well, would you believe them? If they got up in a meeting, in their bath chair, they sat there on the platform and said, I was a cripple, but now I'm totally healed. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And you saw them sitting in their bath chair. How many of you would believe them? You wouldn't, would you? Oh, you call it a wheelchair, don't you? Not a bath chair now. But um, I don't believe people when they claim deliverance from sin or when they claim to be filled with the Holy Ghost, unless I see signs following their life. And I want to see those signs following. Jesus said, These signs shall follow them that believe. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. They shall cast out devils in my name. They shall speak in new tongues. I want to see the signs following, believers. Don't you? Very definite sign. He didn't say fruit of the Spirit. He said these signs shall follow them that believe. 
Say, well, I don't like that. You might not like it. That's what it says in the Bible. No one asks you to like it. You're told to lump it. Then it goes on. People would turn to you, as I've said before, and they'll say, well, it doesn't establish the law, um, grace, and the gospel. When you believe it, it does away with it. That's untrue. Boasting is excluded. If I'm saved by what I believe, I've got something to boast about, haven't I? Hmm? I mean, if it's me that believed and therefore I'm saved, I could go along to a person and say, well, I believed and God saved me. Now, who then did it? Hmm? He himself. The man himself did it. If his belief saved him, he did it. Is that true? Well, is it true or isn't it? Am I twisting it or am I telling the truth? Right, how many of you believe that you only believe and that saves you? No one now. Well, that's better. You're not saved just by believing. You'd agree with it. Well, we're going to prove it. No, you've got to... Now, we dealt with the error. Now I'm going to prove the truth. That's fair, isn't it? Okay, now, you might have never realized that was error. Why? I used to go along in my younger days, and I used to say to people, when, in my less enlightened days, I used to go along to them and say, all you have to do is believe, and God will meet you. And unfortunately, that wasn't true. As I found, some did enter into faith, and some got healed and some got delivered but a lot didn't and what used to bother me was the didn't ones I used to rejoice with the ones that did but my heart wondered over the people that didn't and that's what happens in a lot of churches people are trying to believe and trying to muster up faith and they can't they can't though they acquiesce to it intellectually and most churches evangelical churches are full of intellectual believers but there's nothing in the heart and I don't want that type of belief now the reason is if you look in um, verse 27 where is boasting then it is excluded by what principle of works no no not the principle of works because if it was the principle of works, we'd have something to boast in. But by the principle or the law of faith, the law of faith, if I am moving and living in the principle of faith, I have nothing that I can boast in myself. Nothing. If I'm living in the principle of faith. Now if I'm living in the principle of believism, I'll boast about it. But if I live in faith, I know that I can do nothing for my salvation. I can't save myself. I can't believe myself into what God has done. If God doesn't give me a gift of faith and implant it in my heart, I can't believe. Faith is the gift of God. And God has to give me, and if he doesn't give me the principle of faith and put it within me, I can't believe. That's why Peter, look, 
Paul looked once and he perceived that the man had faith. It was in him, but it was God's gift to him. And you can't believe if God doesn't give you the gift. It's impossible. It just is impossible. So when I believed and it happened, no you didn't. God gives the gift of faith and if he doesn't, you can't believe. True? God has to put it there. No one else can. Faith cometh by hearing the word of God. That's how faith comes and your heart lays hold of it. But you can't put it there. You can't believe it there. If it's not there, it doesn't work. How many have tried to believe themselves into faith? Well, I have. And how many found it just didn't work? Well, I did. People said to me, go on, all you have to do is believe, believe, go on, believe, go on, believe. And after sweating and puffing and panting and praying and kneeling and cussing and dundering and munching and hunching, I thought, this is no good. I got to one stage of nearly tearing my hair out. Let faith in the top. Um, I, I just couldn't believe. It just wasn't in me. But when God comes by the Holy Ghost and quickens in your heart by the Holy Ghost, just like that you can believe. And you, at that point, it's impossible not to believe. Once you could never believe, even when you try to believe intellectually, and suddenly God plonks it in your heart, and now you can't disbelieve. How many have found that so? And you can't say, you think, well, somehow I've always known it. But for the first time in your life, you really do know it. Once you knew it intellectually, now you know it because God's put a gift of faith in you. Hmm? It's the difference between believism and reality. Faith is a substance of things hoped for, the very substance of it. Once before, I tried to believe and I hoped it would happen and I thought if I believed enough, it would. Then I gave up, saw it wouldn't work. Then I said, okay, God, well, if you don't do it, it won't get done. And God said, all right, now you're going to stop trying. Yes, Father. Right, I'll do it for you. And faith comes in. Yeah? When? When he chooses. But we're coming to that. We'll come to that in a minute. Okay? But it's a good question. Remember it. But I hope you remember the rest of what I say too. But I'm coming to that. Okay? Now that is the truth. Now what saves you? Now what is the thing that brings salvation? I'll tell you. My, my, my. Verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the ransom that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth 
to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Now what saves you? Faith in his blood. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross is the thing that saves me, not what I believe. Christ took my sin into himself on Calvary's cross. That saves me, not what I believe. What he did 2,000 years ago brings my salvation. True or false? Huh? It's not anything to do with what I believe. It's what he did. Isn't it? Well, is it or isn't it? You see, that's where the truth lies, in the cross of Calvary. On the cross. Now, if Christ hadn't died on the cross, nothing I could do, nothing I could believe would ever save me. Would it? Do you understand what I'm saying? It's the cross that is the whole purpose of Christianity. It's the cross. Christ came to die on Calvary's cross. His death is the thing that saves me and justifies me. True? Now, it doesn't matter what I do, I can't change the fact that he died on Calvary's cross, can I? Well, can I? Will my belief change it? Or my unbelief change it? No. Will the fact that he rose again the third day from the dead be changed by what I think? No. Will the fact that he took my sin into himself change the fact of what he did? If I say I don't believe, will it change it? If I turn around and say, well, he took the wrath of God for me, but I don't believe it, will that change the fact that he did? No, he did those things on Calvary's cross. So the gospel is the first part. And Paul goes on to say, look here, you can't boast. Boasting's excluded. Nothing you do will save you. It's not of the law of works, and if it was by believing, then it would be my work to do, wouldn't it? I would be doing my part while God did his. But that's a lie. I can't do anything to save myself, can I? Do you understand what I'm saying, or have I lost you all? You all understand. There's nothing I can do to save myself. My salvation is in what Christ did on Calvary's tree. True? How can I get faith? God gives me faith. When? Hmm? when he chooses that's the truth it happens when God chooses it to happen that answers your question now the reason it happens when God chooses is because that's the way it is you say well what about it says whomsoever will may come true how many of you went and heard gospel messages and saw other people respond, but didn't respond yourselves. Now, had you an opportunity to respond, 
but somehow you just didn't believe at that time and get convicted. Others responded and you watched. True? Now you can't explain why the day came where everything spoke to your heart and you knew it applied to you, but suddenly it did and you became alive to it. True? Now you don't know, God put it inside you to do that. Now if he doesn't put it inside you to do it, you'll go to hell. But at that time, you must respond. When you become aware of the truth, and when you agree it is the truth, and inside you know what's being said is the truth, you must respond to that truth. And if you don't, it'll judge you. In that day, it'll judge you. But you can't make yourself realize it inwardly unless God puts it there and quickens it to your heart by the Holy Ghost. And it's a mystery how he does it. I have seen people come to this church, for instance, and for two years sit there with a head like blotting paper. And I've gone home and I've prayed and I've said, Oh God, open their eyes! And they'll say, Oh, I agree with everything, it's wonderful, I do. And yet I know that they haven't received faith. Now I also know if God doesn't give them the gift, no amount of my preaching will bring it about. I can't impart salvation, only God can. I can't impart faith, only God can. What I can do is preach the word and trust that his spirit will bring conviction. But if it doesn't, I'm powerless. Now that's the truth, isn't it? God quickened you, I didn't. God made your heart alive, I didn't. I can't. I wish I could. Sometimes I've said to um, Ed when I've seen him, I've said, you know, sometimes I feel I could get a knife and cut people open and take their heart out and put in a heart that believes. I'd like to be able to do it, perform surgery on them, because they won't believe. I feel like shaking them saying, go on, believe! But I know it won't work. Sometimes I feel like getting so desperate I could, in righteous indignation, donk them one. But it won't make them believe if God doesn't come and sweetly, in his love, put his faith there, you cannot believe. Hmm? Now what I can do, I can faithfully sow the seed. But it's God who gives the increase. I can faithfully preach the word, but if God doesn't give increase, forget it, pastor, that's it. True? In other words, I believe in the sovereignty of God. Whom he will, he'll save. Anumi willy hardness, says in Romans, chapter 12. One vessel's made for honour and another vessel's made for dishonour. And that's the truth. And there's nothing I can do about it. If you're made for dishonour, dear, that's the end.
And that, that's it. So, well, isn't there anything you can do? No, nothing. I can preach the word faithfully, but if basically God doesn't quicken it to your heart, it's just letters, words, ideas. Never becomes reality. We're saved by the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect work on the cross. We're saved by his death on Calvary. We're not saved by what we believe. changes your thinking doesn't it hmm I've heard people say I know I'm saved because I believe I know they're liars I know a man saved when Jesus saves him and if Jesus doesn't save him he's not saved that's the truth you say well how does this fit in with what it says in the epistle to James, chapter 2. How can it possibly fit in with that? Nay, by, but by the law of faith. How can it fit in with James, chapter 2? Well, we'll turn to it. I'm glad you asked that. Well, I mean, better to answer the error before you ask it, isn't it? And in James, chapter 2, verse 24, we have a total conundrum. That means we have a total contradiction. Here it says, James chapter 2, You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Well, well, well. There you are. You see the preacher's been preaching wrong. Well, has he? Just a minute, compare it, keep your thumb in there, or your finger, and go back to Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 27. Where is boasting then? Is it excluded by what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Now, works has nothing to do with salvation, and yet, when I go to James, I can read a scripture which says, you see how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. You might say, well, how can you fit the two together? Seems a contradiction to all I've been saying, doesn't it? That's why I've gone there. Right, now you can never take a scripture out of context, can you? wrong to take a scripture out of context so now we're going to see the context of the scripture and then we'll realize that what he's saying here is identical to what Paul was saying in Romans that's what's important uh, if you look back then in uh, Martin Luther just to give you some useless information Martin Luther called the epistle of James the epistle of straw uh, because he couldn't fathom out what these scriptures meant and so he called this an epistle of straw and he always talked about Romans and ignored the epistle of James. Uh, now the reason for that was he didn't understand it. But it has, actually if you read it, it's quite easy to understand uh, and we're going to. Okay, in James 2 verse 14... What doth it profit a man, my brethren... 
Though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? Can faith save him? Faith alone. Hmm? No. No, thank you. Okay. I was worried you were going to say yes then. Um, now, does faith save a man anyway? What saves a man? The blood of Jesus Christ and what Christ did on Calvary's cross and his perfect life. That's what saves. Not faith. Faith is the vehicle that's used, but it isn't the thing itself. All right, if I want to go to Manchester, I might get in a car, my car's outside, I might get in my car and drive to Manchester. When I get there, is my car Manchester? No, what's Manchester? The city. What got me there was the car, but my car isn't part of Manchester. Now, faith is a vehicle to get me somewhere. It isn't the thing. It's merely a vehicle. And when I begin to grasp that, I'll understand a few things. You look dumb now. Do you understand the difference between a car and Manchester? It's these easy illustrations I like, you know. Verse 15 and 16 explains it. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be you warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? If you come to my house and you're naked, I'll shut the front door. <laughs> You'll get arrested. Um, if, you, if, if you come to my house and you're destitute and you're freezing and I stood on the doorstep and I said, in the name of Jesus, be warmed and filled, you know, because you were hungry as well. It wouldn't make you full, would it? Wouldn't do anything. You'd still be shivering. Now, if I went and got a blanket and I sat you down and I sent my wife to make a big mug of steaming Ovaltine, and, um, naturally, and um, we came and we fed you as well, now, that would be reality, wouldn't it? Just claiming it in Jesus' name isn't reality, it's doing the thing. True? It's not just saying before warm formed and formed and filled it's doing it and it's the same here um, even so faith if it hath not works is dead being alone you see faith without action is dead all right let's go on verse 19 thou believest that there is one god thou doest well What does it say? The devils also believe and tremble. That doesn't save them. Now you see, belief without action is not faith. 
not living faith. Verse 20, But wilt thou, O vain man, wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Now to have a living faith, it must work in my life. If I say I believe, but nothing happens in me, then it's not true, is it? It's not faith. Now what James was saying here to people was it's like the man who says, by his stripes I am healed, by his stripes I am healed, and he's obviously sick and claims to have faith. Now that faith is what? Dead. It's not the living faith of God, because if God had given that faith, it would work. True? Is that true? You'd agree with that. And there are a lot of people that claim to have faith, but it doesn't work in reality in their lives. It gets them nowhere. Imagine me going out to the front of the hall after the meeting, and I stand at the front door. I put my hand on my head. I'm going home to dinner. I'm going home to dinner. I believe I'm going home to dinner. I'm going... It's roast beef. I must get home to dinner. Yorkshire pudding. Fantastic. I'm getting home to dinner. And I stood there. When you came back in the evening meeting, you'd see someone standing there going, I'm going home to dinner. I'm going home to dinner. I mean, I'd still be there. Now, I'd say, but I believed if I believed hard enough, I'd get there. But I won't. Now, if I got in my car and said it's roast beef and Yorkshire pudding, put my foot on the accelerator and drove home quick, I hope it is, but um, if I go, drove home quick, now, I would have to take action to receive the thing. But my action doesn't make the thing. My action merely takes me to the place where it is. Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, my action is the, it's the vehicle. Faith is the vehicle. But it isn't the thing. Faith is the vehicle that gives me the thing, the substance. It's the substance of things I hope for. Faith is that. But you see, the reality of the thing, faith takes me there. But it doesn't save me. I'll give you a few examples in a minute. Um, just verse 26 of this chapter. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. All right? Faith, that means believing without it actually working in me is dead. If I'm just claiming it, claiming it, claiming it, I know I'm saved, I believe it says. Now I'll give you an example. Uh, I was involved with a mission, and in the mission... There were people from Fellowship House, let's take them for an example, came along and told us that, you know, you can learn how to counsel people. And here was one of the instructions they gave. Totally false, but here was an instruction. One I didn't agree with, but they didn't ask me to teach, so I just sat there and didn't listen. But one of the instructions they taught was, when you talk to a person about salvation, what you do is you go through and you say, for God, you take him to the scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have, a, have eternal life. Now, what do you say to a person after you read that scripture? Do you believe it? 
And I say, well, I believe it. Do you believe he died for your sin and rose from the dead? Yes, I believe it. Yes, yes, you told me that happened. Do you know you're a sinner? Well, I'm, I don't know that I'm a sinner. I've always been. Ah, but God says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and he all includes you, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I suppose it does. Yes, if that's what God says. And you accept it. Yes, I accept it. Well, say this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me and rising again from the dead. I thank you you've taken all my sin, and I thank you you've saved me. Hallelujah. Amen. The person says it after you. Say, well, praise God, brother, now you're saved. They're not anything of the sort. You say, well, they believed the scripture, so they did, but they haven't got faith. That's a very different commodity. Now, a lot of people have entered into a salvation that way, but it's not a real salvation. It's believism. Because it was their intellectual belief that's the thing that saved them. That's what you're telling them. But that doesn't save them. It's what Christ did on Calvary's cross that saves them. So they were teaching a lie to people. And you find churches full of people that say, well, I know I'm saved because I believe that Jesus died for me. That, my friend, doesn't save you. What saves you is when God gives you a gift of faith and you know that Jesus died for you personally. You know that he's risen again from the dead and you know that he sitteth on the right hand of the Father and you know your sins are washed away in his precious blood. You know it. So, well, how do you move into that knowing from believing? Well, actually, God brings that. And if God doesn't do it, you don't get saved. One is reality and the other is faith without works. It doesn't really work, does it? How many were told to believe and come to salvation in that kind of mechanical way? Were quoted scriptures to? And how many found it didn't work? <laughs> yeah, that's the answer. That was faith without works, it's dead. If God doesn't put it in your heart, it doesn't work. I've seen so many people made shipwrecked because they claim to be Christians and they try to live the Christian life, but inside, if they're honest, God has never quickened their hearts and really given them faith. You see, you're saved by the law or the principle of faith without work. Boasting's excluded. I'm not saved because of what I did. I'm saved because Jesus in his love and his mercy and his grace one day quickened his word to my heart, took the veil away from my eyes, and I just knew it was true. And suddenly faith sprung up in my heart and I knew I was saved. I knew I was forgiven. I knew I was cleansed. I'd heard the words before, but this time I had a living faith come into me. Now only God can impart that. I can't boast that I believed I didn't. Until he put that faith in my heart and life, I couldn't believe. Paul writes to the Jews who used to boast of the law 
And he used to say, I'm a child of God. We receive the law from God. We follow the law of God. Therefore, we're God's people. Paul writes to them and he says, where is boasting? It is excluded. By what law? The law of works? Nay, but by the law or the principle of faith. We're saved through faith. We're saved by faith. But faith doesn't save us. It's the vehicle to save us. Comprehend? Understand? Faith is this, my friend. Faith is firstly becoming aware of the truth that 2,000 years ago Christ died on Calvary's cross, a horrible death. He took not only my sin into himself but also the wrath of God against sin which was righteously aimed at me, Christ took into his own body on Calvary's tree. The wrath, the judgment of God, Christ took. The judgment that was mine, Christ took into himself, and the penalty for my sin, Christ took into himself. Third day he rose again from the dead. All right? His blood was presented to the Father when he went back to glory and it atoned for my sin. And without shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. I believe it with all my heart. I'm aware of that truth. The second thing, I assent to it. God, I know and believe that that is so. The third thing I do to have a living faith is I must commit myself to that truth and say, God, I don't just want to assent to it, I don't want to just be aware of it, but I want to commit my whole life to the fact that you died for me. And when I make that committal, having become aware of the truth and agreeing with the truth, and I commit my life to that truth, God will quicken my heart. Faith will transport me into salvation and I'll get the reality of it that works. But my belief doesn't save me. God's imparting of the faith does. Because otherwise it'll just be like words in your ears. If God's quickened it to your heart, you know inside it's so. That's the difference. Say, when does God do it? <laughs> when he chooses to lighten you, my friend. Not before and not afterwards. But the scripture says, now is the time of salvation. Now is the acceptable time of the Lord. You might be one of those who believed your belief saved you. That's a lie of the devil. Christ's work on Calvary will save you. Will you respond to that? Let's pray. thank you that your word is true that your word is sharper than a two-edged sword and divides between soul and spirit Lord thank you that our beliefs won't save us Lord our claims and professions don't save us 
No matter how hard we try to believe, we can't save ourselves. But, oh God, it's the gift of faith alone, the gift of God, the fact that you died on Calvary, Jesus, for us, that you bore our sins on Calvary's tree, that you took the righteous judgment of God into your own body on Calvary's tree, that the third day you rose again from the grave Oh God, we thank you for it. That you live forevermore in heaven to make intercession for us. Lord, we thank you that we can't boast that we deserved your salvation. We can't boast that we even believed it. We thank you that you quickened our hearts and put a living faith there. Forgive us, oh God, that we have been presumptuous to believe it was our believing our faith when really it was your gift Lord humble hearts Lord touch each one we want to come humbly before thee O God and see that salvation is in Jesus Jesus